I want to speak to you this evening on this subject, the enduring love of God for his people. And I've themed this study in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, the relentless love of God. And this is another emphasis here on this subject as we look at Hosea chapter 11 together. Idolatry and spiritual failure and moral corruption were everywhere among the people in Hosea's time. So God sent a message of judgment, but with that message of judgment was also a message of hope if the people would come to him. We saw symbolically, uh, both literally and as an illustration, the marriage of Hosea and Gomer that symbolizes the relationship of God and his people. God was offended by the unfaithfulness of his people and would ultimately send Jesus as the deliverer, and there are foreshadowings of that even in this book as we think about the grace of God and the love of God that is on display. The last time we were together, we looked at Hosea 9 and then also uh, chapter 10. Hosea 9 is about expectation, but it's also a dark expectation of judgment because of the sin of the people. So we find in it a prophecy of what is coming The people had forsaken God, and God had forsaken the people, at least for a time. We find out also why these things were coming, because the people were morally and spiritually blind, and they were tone deaf to what God was saying to them. And then we find the prayer of Hosea. And Hosea cries out to the Lord, and he says, give them, Lord. And then he says, I don't even know what you're going to give them. He was perplexed. What will you give them, Lord? And then that chapter closes with God's final word on the subject and Hosea's response. Chapter 10 shifts the focus to the importance of seeking the Lord. God called the people out for having a divided heart and being guilty before him. And he spoke to them about the fallow ground. Verse 12 in particular of chapter Uh, 10 speaks of the fallow ground that needed to be broken up. And when it was broken up, seeds of righteousness were to be planted and the rain of God's Holy Spirit would come down and nurture those seeds of righteousness so that they would bear fruit. So Hosea, time and again through his message, teaches us about the enduring love of God for his people. And this love of God that he has for his people is so great that it even extends beyond their rejection of the love that God extended to them. And I think what we find about the love of God, especially in the opening three chapters of the book, is reiterated and found clearly again here in chapter 11. Now, chapter 11 is a bit interesting because it's presented as a complete unit of thought. It's a little bit more self-contained or confined than some of the other chapters are, uh, with Israel responding to the love of God with obstinate rejection. And it's divided into uh, three sections, and that's what we're going to look at together. So let me give you these three sections, and then we'll begin with the first one. Uh, There's a past, verses 1 through 4, in which the saving acts of God and the sins of his people are interwoven. Uh, There is a present in verses 5 through 7 in which the threat was posed against the people for their rebellion against God 
And then there is a promise in verses 8 through 11. A past, a present, and a promise. The promise is of a future restoration that would come. And the only thing that made that future restoration possible was the enduring love of God. Now, we look at Israel sort of as a snapshot during this time frame. They were at a crossroads. Uh, They were basically recalcitrant at that time, rebellious to the core. Uh, The northern and the southern kingdom had split. Uh, Israel was the northern. Judah was the southern. Uh, They'd come to this time now where there's all this unrest and there's this uh, political intrigue. There's Egypt and Assyria who are bringing about political destabilization in the country. And Hosea presents his message from that perspective of what's referred to as one of the minor prophets. Uh, Not because it's minor in the message, but it's minor as far as the length is concerned. So let's begin with the past. There is a past. And I want to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read the first four verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them, they sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. So all of a sudden, we're brought into this declaration of the love of God for his people. And in a sense, we're given a historical perspective, and God uses this historical perspective to make a point. This specific historical reference is connected closely with the metaphor of Israel being presented as a nation, as the Son of God. And the exodus in Egypt, you'll remember, signified the birthplace of a nation. But more importantly, the familial relationship that the nation had with God, with God as the father and they as his children. Now that designation today rings true as well. God is our father and we are his children. Now any of you that are parents or Uh, maybe already grandparents as well, know that being a parent is hard. No matter what the child's age is, uh, we do this delicate balance of seeking to nurture and to teach and to instill discipline and love. And it's one of the greatest challenges, I think, that any human being can face. And as we watch our children grow, uh, we hold our breath as parents and we are constantly asking ourselves, Is our child okay? Did uh, we mess them up too bad? Uh, We recognize how high the stakes are as we go through this process. Uh, Did I teach them well enough in order to launch them to be on their own? And when God looks at us as his children, he's thinking similar things, even though he has the benefit of being able to know how it's all going to turn out. We don't have that luxury. All we see is what's right in front of us. And yet this idea of the parent and the child relationship holds true and it helps us understand how God sees us. In fact, I would say that it makes a whole lot of sense 
uh, because after all, we believe that God made us, uh, God loves us, uh, God wants to nurture us. He certainly teaches us through his word and by his spirit, and it stands to reason that at times we drive uh, God to the point that he's frustrated with us in a holy sense of frustration. Certainly we can say that we test God's patience, and yet his patience endures for us. Now the scripture speaks here of him calling them or calling my son. Now that's important because it emphasizes the role of the divine call, both in Exodus and also in general of God calling people to himself. Even now we think about God calling a family to himself. He's building a family from among the nations. And these verses establish that love basis of the relationship of God and his people. Now verse 2 shows the reaction of faithless Israel to the love of God. And I think this is almost presented as a, as a memory. It's kind of like when somebody's uh, going through and flipping the pages of a photo album. A parent is maybe recalling how they cared for their child from the earliest of times. Uh, the name Ephraim is used, a tribal name representing the remnant of Israel. Um, and then the parent is loving the children, and the parent is teaching the children to walk, and the parent is picking up the child and leading that child and caring for that child tenderly. And the parent is getting down on the level of the child. And everything here is a hallmark of what we would call good parenting. But then there's a contrast, unfortunately. And the contrast is between the hallmark of a faithful, consistent parent who is perfectly holy and righteous, unlike us, and the rejection of the children. And I think the rebellion is two-part. It's marked by failure to respond to God's call and then a turning away to worship idols. So it's a deafening of the ears, a hardening of the heart, but it's also a turning away to worship something that was contrary to God. And then we find that parent-child relationship again in verses 3 and 4 with the careful actions of the parent in raising the child. Now, I want you to note here that the problem or the breakdown in this relationship was not because of the father. There's no problem with the father. The problem in the breakdown was in the children. He held their hands. He cared for them and healed them. He picked them up when they stumbled. He continued to watch over them and provide for them as a nation, and yet they turned away to do their own thing. And in verse 4, uh, there's uh, another uh, metaphor of someone gently leading uh, an, an animal, really, with uh, cords of love rather than driving them with a whip. So God helps them bear the burden rather than uh, adding to it, having established that relationship with himself and gently carrying them alone. So here's a, uh, some application, I think, of these first four verses. If we want to make this contemporary and apply this to our lives and think about how God deals with us, it's God who establishes the relationship with us, and it's God who calls us to himself. We did not know we were lost. 
We wouldn't know that there was a loving Heavenly Father. We wouldn't know how to get to Him. And there's no way that we could get there on our own. And He extends this love to us, as we'll see a little bit more clearly even in the cross here in just a few moments. How should we respond? Faith. The only proper response to God is faith. It's to believe and to trust. And then as God calls us and we believe, what does he do? He gently leads us along. He's not whipping us along the way. He's bringing us with these gentle cords of love and taking us to where he wants us to be. So there is a past. But the second part of this is that there is a present. Look again in verse 5. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king because they refuse to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. So what will we do when the enduring love of God is shown to us? It's easy to see the error of these people's ways, but how do we respond when God loves us the way that he loves us? Israel was determined to ignore God. The message came through the prophets. Remember I told you in the last two chapters that it was not that the message of the prophets was unclear. God had been abundantly clear. God had been explicitly clear about what he wanted the people to do and how he wanted them to respond to him in faith. And it simply came down to the fact that they chose not to do it. And the choice of the gods of the other nations suggested that the main problem was They had a preference for the ways of the world rather than having a preference for the ways of God. And it's no different today. God lays it out there for us and the gospel is clear. And when we come to him in faith, the path that he has for our lives is clear. But every individual has to come to the place in the present where they decide who they're going to follow and how they're going to live. And we mark out that path that God has for us, and we follow him in obedience. They were disloyal to the God who loved them so much. I think it's almost abrupt when we read this passage of Scripture from uh, verses 3 and 4, where he's talking about the, the gentle love of the Father guiding the children. And now all of a sudden, the passage changes, and it's an oracle that's speaking to their current situation And all of a sudden, he's talking about swords, violence, devouring the cities. All of that was going to come. And what was it coming as? It was coming as a package of judgment. And yet, they would not return to God. They would go back to slavery, in a sense, to bondage because of their sin. And it would be at the hands of Assyria. Now, I think it's important to note here as well that uh, the parent, or God the Father, is speaking of the natural consequences for what they did. Did you know that for every action, there's a consequence? For every decision that we make, 
there's something that follows with it. And if we make good decisions and we sow seeds of righteousness and we follow after God in faith, then that fallow ground is going to get stirred up and it's going to be soft and the rain of the Holy Spirit is going to come down on it and it's going to bear righteous fruit. But if we decide instead to do what we want to do and ignore what God has said and not follow after God with our spiritual life leading the way, then there are going to be some consequences to it. They're natural here in the effect, but they're spiritual in nature. And this is so important. And I think this is one of the things that makes parenting surely the most difficult thing because uh, at times as parents, we have to allow the consequences of decisions to be brought to bear on the lives of our children so that they can learn the lesson. Now, the beauty of this is God shows us the way and what we want to say to our children and teach our children and show them in the Word is good decisions and righteous priorities and spirit-filled living bears good things and the fruit of righteousness. But if you do what you want to do and you just decide that you're going to minimize the spiritual nature of it all and what God has said, there's probably going to be some pain to bear and some consequences to follow. The threat posed in verse 5 is the removal of the people uh, again from uh, their land. Hosea uh, threatens this several times through the words of the Lord. Captivity is in view. God redeemed them from captivity, but he was more than willing to let them go back, except this time to a different place. And the pressure was already being exerted. Remember I told you the the political circumstances were already bringing pressure to bear on the nation. So while they had not yet been carried away at this point, the, the temperature was getting turned up. And the nation was going to ultimately fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. because they refused to turn to God. Now verse 6 in particular indicates the extent of the destruction that was coming. It was going to be a bloody time. Their defenses were going to be useless against the enemy. And I understand that this is, a, this is a physical illustration that's being given here by Hosea. But it has a direct spiritual application. Because when we don't follow the Lord and we're not filled with the Holy Spirit and we're not yielded up to God, then it doesn't matter once we recognize what the consequences are. If we're trying to defend ourselves, we're not going to have what we need to defend ourselves spiritually. And there's going to be pain that's going to come from it. And it's a warning for us. And I cannot understand for the life of me, other than I can understand biblically, the hardness of the human heart and the, the dullness of spiritual things in many people's lives, even many people who profess to be believers. I cannot understand why when the pathway is so clear, it's, it's so evident in front of us when God says, this is the way, walk in it. Who in their right spiritual mind would not walk in the way? Because this is the way to blessing. This is the way to life. This is the way to purpose. 
And if we ignore it, we ignore it to our own detriment. And they continued as the false prophets led them away from God. According to verse 7, they continued to call on Baal for help. And the false god couldn't do anything for them. Look at verse 7. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the most high, none at all exalt him. My people, they were still the people of God. But they were getting ready to face judgment. When they grew weary of rebellion, some would turn back to God. And you know where God is when we've backslidden and we turn back to where we need to be. You know where God is? He's where he always was. He doesn't move. He's unchanging. His nature is without any shadow of turning. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when the relationship between the father and the children is not right, it's not because the father has abdicated his responsibilities. It's because the children have hardened their hearts and backslidden against God. There's a past, there's a present, and then third, there's a promise. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Now, verse 8 represents a dramatic shift. It is not an inconsistent trait with God to be burdened uh, by the fate of his children. Their continued story in the promise was based on the enduring love of God. Our continued story in the promise is not based on how hard we try or how good we do. Our continued part in the story is based on the enduring love of God. It's his grace to us. It's, it's God who is, who is upholding us. It's God who's pushing us forward. It's God who's gently leading us along. And he's the one that leads us to the place of faithfulness. And back in verse 4, God spoke of the tender care which had characterized his treatment of Israel. And now Hosea, I think, finds himself in a sense looking into the heart of God. And what he's finding here is the gap between judgment and restoration. And in between judgment and restoration is hope. There's always hope when God's in the middle of it. There's always a better day coming when God's in the middle of it. 
And the theme of God toiling over the destruction of his people is not surprising at all. It comes up several times in the Old Testament. But I think this is one of the most passionate displays of the inner struggle that is presented in the Scripture. And even the very reference to Adma and Zeboim provides the standard by which the destruction of Israel had been considered by God. You remember these cities were mentioned in close association with Sodom and Gomorrah, which were also destroyed. And God's compassion stems from the idea of suffering with. It's not sympathy, it's empathy. It's God identifying with the circumstance that his people find themselves in. The compassion of God's an emotion that is springing up from the very life-giving center of God. And the idea of the heart and the compassion tell us something very important about God in this entire metaphor of God as the parent and we as the children. Because the very core of who God is, the, uh, the very heart of God is to forgive. It's to show grace and mercy, not without sins being dealt with, Ultimately, that was the most costly of all because it cost him his only son. But it's the heart of God desiring for people to trust in him. And look in verse 9. He says, I will not three times. It underscores the decision of God not to utterly destroy them. And God the Holy One was, was in their midst And now Israel was ultimately, as you know, dismantled by Assyria, but the remnant was not completely destroyed. And how the future for the faithful would unfold is found in verse 10. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west. This idea of the roaring lion signifies hope because it signifies that God is the one who's coming to do battle on behalf of the people. And they would know that when God spoke that their redemption was at hand. It was the power and the authority and the majesty and the victory and all that goes along with with who God is. And I think the trembling posture of the return suggests a yielding to God with a holy sense of reverence and a joyful anticipation. Because God would be victorious on behalf of his people as they humbly yielded to him and trembled like a bird, like a dove. And now let's look at verse 12. Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One, who is faithful. I'm going to give you the statement, and I'm going to close here in just a second. God's love reaches out to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the highest expression of love possible. He's the embodiment of love. He is God's presentation of love to us. And in that, He is the Holy One who is faithful. And God's faithfulness is not dependent on the faithfulness of man or the faithlessness of man. God's faithfulness never changes. And the love of God is enduring. The love of God goes farther than we can even humanly conceive of. Because we tend to love with 
conditions and depending on the circumstances and all types of things are wrapped up in it. But here's our Heavenly Father who loves us with enduring love. And as I've said, being a parent is hard. But I want you to imagine for a moment how hard it is to be the divine parent. Think about all that is involved with that. That God would create us, redeem us, sustain us, and someday bring us home to be with him. And our knowledge of our children is always imperfect and incomplete. And yet you know the love that we have for our children, the love that we have for our family members. God knows you better than anybody ever could because he knows everything about you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, as they say, and everything in between. And yet he loves you more than anybody could ever love you. And that is a good father. That is a father who loves with an enduring love. That is the image of compassion and a love that is everlasting. My prayer is that our response to God would be one of faith. And then our lives would be marked out by faithfulness. Reflecting the love that God has shown to us. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father.